I would say advantage and disadvantage of using DTIs on ECMO, because the nice thing is there's only one lab test to follow, but that also can be a disadvantage that there's only one lab test to follow. Welcome back to PeteScript. I'm Zach Hodges, a critical care fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Today, we're very excited to have Dr. Allie McMichael and Dr. Lisa Settle with us to discuss anticoagulation in pediatric ECMO. Dr. McMichael, who was previously with us here in Dallas at UT Southwestern, is now an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Arizona and a pediatric intensivist at Phoenix Children's. Research interests are anticoagulation in ECMO, and notably, she was the first author of the 2021 ELSO Adult and Pediatric Anticoagulation Guidelines. Dr. Settle is a fellow here with me at UT. She's a great educator, and her research interests are also in ECMO anticoagulation for her fellowship project. Yes, this is such a good conversation about our most acute and high-risk patients, and we've gone right to the first author of the guidelines. So I thank Zach for recruiting Dr. McMichael and look forward to the episode. Oh, for sure. Thanks a bunch, and let's get going. Welcome back to PedScript. We are so excited to have Dr. Allie McMichael and Dr. Lisa settle with us today for this topic and discussing ECMO anticoagulation. To get things started, Lisa and Allie, will you just tell our listeners something about yourself and maybe include something you enjoy doing outside of medicine? Sure. So I originally grew up in New Mexico, and so I have a very strong liking for hatch chili. And right now it's hatch season, so I think that is the most exciting fun fact with me is my love for chili right now. I'm really interested in ECMO and anticoagulation as far as my academic pursuits. And I think that's just because we have so much to learn and things are continually changing. And ECMO is, when we think about it, kind of a new therapy, really been only around since the 1970s. So I think we have a lot more to learn. So that's continued to be my research interest and I think will hopefully continue to be my research interest for many years to come. We agree that it is important. Lisa, what about you? So I am a second year fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. I made my way here originally from Louisville, Kentucky. I love going to football games and so super excited that it's fall or headed towards fall and football games are about to be starting again. And then I really got interested in ECMO anticoagulation because at the start of fellowship, it was kind of the height of COVID and we were doing lots of ECMO and titrating anticoagulation labs and following those. So Allie was really inspiring in all of it um, and just got me really interested in the topic. That's fantastic. Alice, as we jump into our conversation, you want to start with our case? Yeah. So you are on call overnight in the PICU managing a neonate on VA, ECMO, secondary to suspected sepsis, and PPHN. She's required a significant amount of increase in heparin during the past 24 hours. Her APTT is well above the goal range at 95, and her anti-10A is below the goal at 0.15. There also seems to be increased fibrin stranding and clot burden noting on the ECMO circuit now as compared to this morning. So this is a typical case, but it may seem a bit obvious, but remind us, why do we have to anticoagulate these patients on ECMO, and and why is this an important topic for us today? Sure. So anticoagulation on ECMO is really necessary for all of our pediatric patients, really just to prevent catastrophic circuit clotting. But the really important thing about anticoagulation is we have to balance the bleeding in the patient when we're balancing the bleeding in the circuit. And we know that for pediatric patients on ECMO, the most common complications are going to be due to bleeding and clotting. And that's why we spend so much time and energy in researching anticoagulation is we're really trying to minimize these really significant complications that not only have significant morbidity but also mortality as well. 
And anticoagulation on ECMO is particularly challenging because we're talking about our sickest of the sickest patients in the unit. So no one is well going on to ECMO, or almost no one, I should say. And so we're having to balance our patient's critical illness and then the interaction between the patient and the ECMO circuit. And that brings on all types of challenges and and fun things to to try to work through at the bedside. So I feel like the patients that we have the greatest headache about their management of anticoagulation are the youngest ones. So are there any special considerations that we should keep in mind when we're managing anticoagulation in children and even those neonates? For sure. So I think we know this in pediatrics in general, but kids are not just little adults. And so especially in anticoagulation, we have to think about the differences not only in a teenager versus an adult, but an infant versus a neonate and an adult as well. And so we talk a lot about developmental hemostasis and the idea that the coagulation factors that kids are born with are not the same as what we have as adults. So for example, factor 7 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 when kids are born, those levels are about 50% of what they would be as an adult. But then we have other factors like 8 and 5 and fibrinogen and von Willebrand factor, which actually can be the same level as adults or actually higher. And so the interesting thing about neonates is while they may have differences in their coagulation factors in quantity and quality, their system is overall balanced, right? That's why most neonates just don't run around bleeding and clotting all the time. But when we start messing with their coagulation system with critical illness and then adding the anticoagulation on top of that, we can have significant disturbances and that can increase their risk of bleeding and clotting. So we definitely have to keep in mind those differences in neonates and children compared to adults. And so for this patient here, we've got a neonate whose PTT is discordant with her anti-10A level or her UFH level. And so is this, is this typical for sort of the neonatal anticoagulation and how would you address this? Yeah, I think it's really typical, unfortunately, to have discrepant labs on ECMO. Um, I think that's something that Lisa was mentioning in the beginning that we see frequently. And so oftentimes we see that the PTT is higher in neonates compared to adults. So their normal baseline PTT level is higher than an adult. We do expect it to be a little bit higher range than we would in an adult. And I think the 10A level can be low for all sorts of reasons. And we can talk about that more here or later, but there's a lot of things that go into each of the lab testing that can make their levels falsely elevated or falsely low as well. But this situation where we see a high PTT and a low 10A is very common in neonates. Sure. So you mentioned the elevated PTT, maybe the 10A or anti-10A level maybe leans to be lower in, in neonates. Big picture, are there any other key differences that you think of when managing anticoagulation in young kids and neonates versus adults? Yeah, so one of the things that we didn't touch on is that heparin is the most common anticoagulant during pediatric ECMO, and adult ECMO as well. And that comes from a lot of the data that we have from cardiopulmonary bypass and just comfort and use from using heparin. But important things to know about heparin in kids is that we actually have limited pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data for pediatric patients. We do know that heparin has a variable half-life as compared to adults. So for example, in a healthy adult, the half-life is about one to two hours versus a healthy neonate, the half-life for heparin is only 35 minutes. And kids also have a dose-dependent clearance as well. And then kids also likely have heparin resistance or relative heparin resistance due to low antithrombin levels at baseline. So if we, we talked about the fact that you know we have this concept of developmental hemostasis, so most neonates don't reach adult um, antithrombin levels until about six months 
And antithrombin is really important if you remember for heparin because heparin is going to bind to antithrombin, form that complex, which is then going to go on to activate 10A. And you need that complex to increase that activity by at least a thousand fold. And so I think those are important things to think about specifically in neonates is just that heparin actually works differently in neonates and kids as it does in adults. I think this isn't always clear and definitely wasn't clear for me starting fellowship that neonates metabolize heparin at a different rate and, and have these different values and the clotting factors that affect its pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. It's key to know that heparin relies on antithrombin-3 and that a low antithrombin-3 level might make heparin not as effective or so-called heparin-resistant. And we do talk about heparin resistance quite a bit. And intuitively, I know, I think I know what it means, but is there really a definition of heparin resistance that we should keep in mind? Just a really great question, and it's really defined differently amongst other centers. So the idea of heparin resistance in general is that you need more and more heparin to try to obtain your goal anticoagulation lab, which whatever that lab may be that your center is following. And so different centers have different values of heparin that they would consider being resistant. So some centers will say if you have a heparin dose of over 40 units per kilo per hour, for example, and you're not able to attain goal anticoagulation, that would be heparin resistant. Some centers would actually say it's not until you reach heparin of 60 units per kilo per hour which seems you know, really high for some people too. But heparin resistance is just the overall idea that we're going up and up on our dose and we're not attaining our goal. And there's lots of different reasons why we think that may be, but the most common one that we tend to think of is due to antithrombin. Ali, what do you think about transfusing thrombate in these patients that have low antithrombin? Oh, that's a great question and very hotly debated. You know, I think that there's some data on either side to say that it may be helpful or might not be helpful. The advantages of thrombate obviously are you are replacing what we know is an important enzyme for heparin, but the disadvantages, one is actually really mainly cost. It's really expensive to give thrombate. And the other is there's some data to show that it may increase your risk of bleeding. There's actually some studies that show it may increase your risk of clotting as well. And so right now, now there isn't great data to say that it definitely is effective, although there are some centers that will transfuse thrombate or give thrombate depending on what their level is and how much heparin that they're on. And it's very helpful to know that, that thrombate's antithrombin 3, right? Yes, yes. Thrombate is antithrombin 3. And so we often use those words interchangeably. Antithrombin, AT3, antithrombin 3 all mean the same thing, but thrombate is the, the brand of the drug. That's so interesting because thrombate plus heparin equals a factor 10A inhibitor. And especially if, you know, you give like FFP instead or something else, I'm really surprised that there's data to show that it increases clotting. That's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Or that it's, it could, right? That it could, right. And so I think it's hard to tease out exactly if it really was the drug because so many other things are going on in the patient, but that's where the data definitely gets confusing. And that's a really good point, Alice. Some places will actually give FFP instead of thrombate alone because there is AT3 in FFP, and so you can actually increase your AT3 levels giving FFP alone. Now, to really make a significant difference, you'd have to give a lot of FFP, but um, so if you're really wanting to give pure antithrombin, you should give thrombate. Well, when we think about this sort of heparin resistance and things like that, how do you go about choosing a particular agent to anticoagulate your patient? Would you consider bivalrudin or something else? 
Yeah, so before we had direct thrombin inhibitors, our really major choice was going to be heparin. And now we have some newer drugs on the market, mainly by Valoridin and Argatravan. So direct thrombin inhibitors, which are exciting to think about. And so I think a lot of it comes down to comfort and knowledge. It's what people tend to choose. And so like I mentioned, heparin is still the most common anticoagulant because we have the most data, the most knowledge and expertise in using it. But direct thrombin inhibitors are starting to become a little bit more used amongst ECMO centers, although currently there's no large prospective multi-center trial that's comparing a direct thrombin inhibitor to heparin. So we don't know necessarily that they are going to be better. I think a lot of people, including myself, have hopes that they will. And so I think times that people will think about using a direct thrombin inhibitor would definitely be in any setting of heparin resistance like we talked about. So if you are getting to a place where you're going up and up on your heparin dose and you're not able to attain goal anticoagulation, some would consider switching over. The other reason to definitely switch over to a non-heparin would be in the setting of HIT or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which we tend to not see as much in pediatrics as they do in adults, but definitely does exist and something to think about. I think a big learning point as a fellow is as you have more days on ECMO, your circuit starts to get fibrin transient clotting and you start to see the platelet count fall and you're usually replacing platelets to try to keep your goal greater than 100,000. And so it can be difficult to make that distinction of is this hit or is this hemolysis from the circuit? And I think that that has been a big learning point and something to just think about at the bedside as you're considering switching away from heparin. Sure. Yeah, that's helpful. Question about logistics. So would you ever start a patient on ECMO on an agent not heparin? So would you ever start on bivalorudin? And the follow-up question would be, if you were transitioning from heparin to another anticoagulant, how would you do that? Would you run them both at the same time? It seems messy. Yes. So I uh, am a little bit biased because we did a study at UT Southwestern at the Children's Medical Center looking at 30 patients here and we randomized them to heparin or bivalrudin. So we did place our patients on bivalrudin. I think it's totally fine to start a patient on bivalrudin from the start of ECMO. And you may do that because you have concerns even before going on if the patient has hit. And so in that case, you could bolus bivalrudin just like you would bolus heparin during the time of ECMO cannulation and then continue a continuous infusion for the entire ECMO run. Transitioning depends on which agent you're transitioning to and from. And so the main things to know is that bivalorin and argatroban have a short half-life compared to heparin. And so usually we would run agents concurrently so that you can get to steady state of the second agent before turning the first agent off. And some of that has to do with how much you think the patient is at risk for bleeding and clotting. So for example, if you have a patient who's having major bleeding, then you may be okay with holding anticoagulation for a little bit while you're switching to that second agent. Whereas if you have a patient like Lisa's mentioning that's having significant circuit clotting, then you may be fine actually being a little bit over anticoagulated for a few hours while you're switching to the second agent. So a lot of it comes down to what's going on at the patient level and then knowing which agent you're switching to based off of their half-life. Heparin longer, DTA is shorter. So we talked a lot about heparin. We've even mentioned some about bivalorudin. Is there anything you wanted to include about argatroban? 
Yeah, so I think Gargachibian isn't as well studied now as Bivalerudin. They're both direct thrombin inhibitors. The things to kind of know between the two of them is that Bivalerudin is renally cleared, so mainly cleared by proteolytic enzymes, but about 20% is cleared by the kidneys. And so in patients with renal dysfunction, you may have to change the dose. And then conversely, for Gargachibian, it's actually cleared mainly by the liver. And so um, in patients with hepatic dysfunction, that may change the dose as well. And so when people are thinking about choosing DTIs, you may choose for a patient with hepatic dysfunction bivalerudin and a patient with renal dysfunction argatroban. I'm more comfortable using bivalerudin because that's what my center had studied, but I think some of it does come down to patient preference or uh, sorry, center preference. I understand. I mean, just familiarity, right? What you're using. We definitely highlighted the disadvantages of heparin with risk of HIT and heparin resistance. Are there disadvantages of bivalerin and argatroban that we should keep in mind? I feel like I remember something about maybe the cannulas who don't have a lot of flow with bivalerin. Maybe they clot sooner. Yes. First disadvantage is going to be cost, honestly. So both DTIs are much more expensive compared to heparin. The other thing to think about is the half-life is very short. And because bivalve is mainly metabolized by proteolytic enzymes in areas of stasis, so in a small reperfusion cannula, or even, for example, if you have a patient who has very poor cardiac output and the LV is not squeezing and you just have some stasis of blood in the LV, there's concern that you could form clot there. So you can prevent some of that by, for example, running bivalerin directly through the reperfusion cannula to get some direct anticoagulation directly into that cannula. So those things are important to think about. It also affects a little bit how your labs are drawn. So just from a technical level, some things we've seen at, at our um, center is that when we're drawing labs, there may be clot at the pigtail site. So you really need to clear that clot in order to get an adequate sample. Ali, what's the best test if we're using a direct thrombin inhibitor like bivalerudin? So currently the gold standard is to use PTT, both for bivalerudin and argatroban. There's some newer tests like a dilute thrombin time or e-carin chromogenic assay that may be better tests, but for most sites, they're only being used for research. I would say advantage and disadvantage of using DTIs on ECMO, because the nice thing is there's only one lab test to follow, but that also can be a disadvantage that there's only one lab test to follow. And so as you're trying to get more information about what's going on in the patients, we really can't use an anti-factor 10A. Now there is some more data coming along that maybe we will be able to use elastic assays like Tegarotem and ACT as well, but there's not enough data right now to support those. So we talked a lot about heparin, we talked a lot about bivalerudin and argatroban, you know, how it affects the different lab tests differently, but why should we care? Are there different patient center outcomes for all these different anticoagulants? Yeah, so there is, you know, some emerging data to show at least that bivalerin may be not inferior or potentially superior to heparin. The hard part is right now we still don't have a multi-center prospective randomized control trial comparing heparin to another anticoagulant. But at least preliminary retrospective or small prospective studies have shown that bivalerin may actually cause less bleeding compared to heparin and then may actually be just as cost effective, which is really interesting because I've mentioned at the beginning, right, that bival is much more expensive than heparin. And the reason why when uh, studies have looked at overall ECMO costs, bival looks about the same or sometimes less than heparin is because of all of the other costs that go into a patient beyond ECMO. So one is thrombate. So bivalerin is a direct thrombin inhibitor, right? It directly inhibits thrombin and doesn't require antithrombin for effect. 
so you don't ever have to give thrombate. The other thing is oftentimes we're just using PTT to titrate, so you're not using as many labs, although actually most studies haven't looked at that. But the most important things that studies have looked at when they looked at cost is overall transfusion needs. And so when you think about transfusion, there's not only the blood product that you're giving to the patient and all of those side effects can come along with it, but it's also costly as well to transfuse patients. And so I think that data is encouraging that we have so far to see that you know we may actually have a better anticoagulant. And that's what everyone hopes, right? Like I said from the beginning, our most common complications are from bleeding and clotting. And so if we can find a different anticoagulant that can help decrease these complications, that would be great. But I think before most centers transition completely over to DTIs, they'll want to see a, a multi-center prospective randomized study to definitively answer that question. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.